Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. This episode is a special edition of the podcast, where we have a lecture on the Psalms from Dr. James Hamilton, who recently taught our intensive course on the Psalms this past spring. In this lecture, the first lecture of the week, he began to unpack the story of the Psalms. If you'd like to continue listening to this course, that course is available for purchase, and there's a link in the show notes there for you. And next week, we will be resuming our series, Going Through the Prophets in the Book of Daniel, with Peter Lighthart and the rest of the team. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is Dr. James Hamilton teaching on the story of the Psalms. The Psalter is intended to be read as a book in the canon. Okay, so the first part of that, uh, the, the, the intention that the Psalter is to be read as a book means that in the same way that when you listen to a modern musical like Les Mis or uh, Hamilton, an American musical, you're really intended to listen to the whole thing, every individual composition in context of all of the other compositions that are part of the, 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 the entire work, you're not intended to extract one uh, one of those lyrics or something out and listen to it by itself, although that can be a beautiful experience. That's a valid and good thing to do, but really it was intended as a whole. And I think that in the same way, the Psalter was, was, was canonized, it was brought into the canon of Scripture as a whole. And I'll be trying to show in the various ways that the whole thing is stitched together. We'll start into that right after I complete these uh, introductory comments. So that's the first comment. Our understanding of worldview, just briefly, I would define biblical theology as the attempt to understand and embrace the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors. So the, the guys that wrote the Bible, the way that they interpreted earlier scripture, and their circumstances, uh, that, that perspective, I think, is what we're trying to discern and then make our own as we attempt this task of biblical theology. And uh, following people like N.T. Wright and, and others who have sort of popularized him, uh, I think that this interpretive perspective consists of an overarching worldview, a meta-narrative, and then there are truths that we derive from that meta-narrative. So, in other words, the way that God, the way the story is told to us results in us drawing certain conclusions. Okay, so we have the overarching story, and then we have truths that derive from the story, and then those truths are going to have uh, related implications and so forth. Uh, along with the overarching meta-narrative and the truths that we derive from that, um, we, we also have... Um, behaviors that are encouraged, behaviors that are discouraged. So sometimes people want to try to go against um, reading the Old Testament moralistically, but I think every author, whether he's a, a writer of poetry or a modern novel or whatever, he has what he views as virtuous actions and what he views as uh, the opposite of that, and he wants to encourage certain ways of living, and he wants to discourage other ways of living. So the, the virtues and the vices that are encouraged or discouraged, 
They correspond with the overarching meta-narrative, and they are in accordance with the truths that derive from the narrative. Okay? Now, in the Bible, and really I think this is true of all worldviews, there, uh, there's this impulse that is built into us to respond with either gratitude or praise. And, and the book of Psalms is, the Hebrew title of it is Tehillim, which simply means praises. And so in the context of the Bible, these praises are intended to respond to the, the meta-narrative that's been given to us in, by the time the Psalms were written, uh, the law, the five books of Moses, the Torah, and then uh, however much of the, um, the former and the former prophets had been composed by the time this particular sol- sol- psalmist uh, did his work and composed the psalm that we might be looking at. And then uh, the whole Psalter, I think, is, um, is intended uh, to be responding to uh, that, that meta-narrative that is introduced for us in the, what we might call the, uh, the narrative portion of the Old Testament. Um, now the, the, um, I'm going to put this on airplane mode so I stop getting these text messages. Um, the, the Psalter, I think, uh, Gordon, Gordon Wenham is convincing on this point. He argues that the Psalter was created and presented to Israel as an anthology that was intended to be memorized for the enculturation of the youth. In other words, as you, as you imbibe the truths in the Psalms and as you digest and meditate on them, what they do is they, they bring you into tune with the, the meta-narrative and the truths derived from it and the behaviors that are encouraged by it and the behaviors that are, they, they teach you to avoid the behaviors that are discouraged by the narrative. And so the Psalter is meant to enculturate us in concert with uh, the law and the prophets. And in a way, I think the, when we read the Psalms as a book, the, the story that is sung in the Psalms, we come to recognize it as the same story that is sung in the law and the prophets and, and the rest of the writings. And that story is the story of, of this God who is... He's going to triumph over evil. He's going to uh, reconcile man to himself. He's going to cleanse and renew the world. And he's going to accomplish all this through the seed of the woman, who is the seed of Abraham, who is the seed of Judah. And then eventually it comes to be revealed he's the seed of David. So I, I think that the, the, the anthologists or the editors and I, I put this in the plural, but it may have been a singular person. It may have been someone like Ezra, uh, or perhaps Nehemiah was involved. I don't know. Maybe Malachi could have been involved. But whoever brought the Psalter together in its canonical form, um, I think that person intended to present us with, with, with a unified whole, uh, and, and the meaning of the whole is, is greater than the sum of its individual parts. Okay, so we want to read the Psalter as a book in the context of the canon. Now, um, what I want to do uh, at this point, 
our, our, our bullet points are structure and then Psalms 1 and 2 and flow. And I actually, I'm not married to these bullet points, okay? But I actually want to just briefly uh, reverse the first and the second and start with Psalms 1 and 2 with open introductory comments about how these two Psalms um, are intended to introduce us to the whole Psalter. And they're intended to teach us how to read the Psalms and to set the agenda for uh, the rest of the, the book. So, um, uh, before I say, before I go further though, let me, let me just give you my theory about who started this project and how it, how it got off the ground and who carried it forward. So, uh, my view is that, um, I think David wrote Psalm 2, and the reason I think that is because, uh, Acts 4.25 attributes Psalm 2 to David. Um, uh, the, as they, as they begin to pray, uh, they say that you, Lord, uh, spoke by the mouth of David through the, or through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of David. And so they attribute, and then they pray the words of Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Um, so I think that David wrote Psalm 2, and the, the profound interconnectedness of Psalms 1 and 2 inclines me to think that David also wrote Psalm 1. Now, the text doesn't tell me this. I'm making a deduction on the basis of the unity that I perceive between Psalms 1 and 2 that I'm about to try to demonstrate to you. Now, further, I think what we're going to see will indicate that David, as he, as he reflected on all of the Psalms that he wrote over the course of his life, and as he reflected on what he discerned from stories in Genesis and Exodus, and in particular, I'm thinking of the stories of Joseph and Moses, and the way that both were designated by the Lord as the one who would uh, deliver Israel or, or, you know, be used of the Lord to save Israel. And then they're rejected by Israelites. Joseph's rejected by his brothers. Moses is rejected by Israel. And then after a period of suffering, Joseph, Joseph's in prison. Moses is in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, they're, they're exalted and in fact used to deliver, uh, Israel. I think David sees that pattern and then he reflects on his own life and he says, I was anointed king by Samuel and then Saul and the establishment rejected me. And then uh, sure enough, just like Joseph and Moses, uh, the Lord did use me to deliver his people once the enemies were defeated. Um, so David, I think, understands these patterns and he reflects on his own life and he comes to understand that he himself is typifying the one who is to come. And I, be, I think he began to arrange the Psalter to tell that broader story so that it, an, an analogy would be if I were to take a collection of photographs from my life and decide that I was going to use these individual photographs to create a collage that would tell the story of my life, I think it, it would be pretty evident to anyone who looked at the pictures in sequence what story I was trying to tell. And then I think that those who completed the Psalter, um, these, would have, these would have had to have been people who were recognized by the believing community as prophets who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And, and further, they looked at what David did and they understood the story that he was telling in the Psalter. So that it would be analogous to someone who, let's say someone comes along after my life, they look at this collage of photographs and they say, well, you know, Jim didn't put uh, a photograph in there of the two towers smoking 
on September 11th, 2001, but that's a really significant event that did affect various things in the course of his life, so I'm going to slot in that photograph. And then uh, perhaps they, they look at the collage and they say, naturally, Jim didn't put a photograph of his coffin or of his, of his gravestone. So I'm going to put one of those in there. And so what they're doing, what these later people who added to the Psalter are doing, is they're understanding David's intention and they're complementing it and they're adding to it. They're not redirecting it. They're not um, creatively reappropriating it in a way that, that changes its its interpretive direction. I think they've, they've rightly understood David, and then they're, they're um, adding things that highlight, summarize, interpret, um, underline, uh, emphasize, and, and help bring out the meaning that David intended to put there. Um, so, how do we see, how do we see that the Psalms are intended to be read um, as a book in the context of the canon? Well, uh, the first thing that we notice when we look at the Psalter is that there are these, these concluding doxologies that mark the end of each of the books, the five books of the Psalter. So I, I just want to briefly look with you at these doxologies and, and uh, highlight their significant similarities. So uh, at the end of Psalm 41, in verse 13, we read, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Now, um, in view of what we're going to see, I just want to note at this point that um, some scholars look at this and they think that these were editorial additions. You know, that someone came, came across Psalm 41 and, and they decided they were going to put Psalm 41 at the end of book one. And so they decided one, one way to do this, one way to highlight this would be to add these doxologies at the end of the last Psalm in each book. And so they tag on, the editor tags on this doxology. Um, against that view, uh, I, I'm not going to go into it right now. I'm not going to like tell you what I think the chiastic structure of Psalm 41 is, but I do want to say that I think that Psalm 41 is a chiasm, and I think that Psalm 41 verse 13 is an integral uh, part of the chiastic structure of Psalm 41. So in my view, the doxology comes from the hand of the author of the psalm who structured it as a chiasm. In other words, in, in my view, David did this. Um, David David put this doxology here. Same with Psalm 72. If you look over at the last Psalm of Book 2, Psalm 72, we read here, beginning in verse 18, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. Uh, once again, I think that Psalm 72 is a chiasm, and I think that these verses, verses 18 through 20, are an integral part of the coherent whole, the chiastic structure of Psalm 72. So once again, I think that David is the author of this section of Psalm 72, not some later editor who's putting this here, you know, to create the, the book divisions. So this is part of my, uh, part of the reason that I come to the conclusion that I think David is the one who initiated the project of having these five books and structuring the Psalter in this way. I also want to note that verse 20 is a very significant feature of the Psalter. It tells us the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. 
Um, and it's, it's fascinating the way that the superscriptions, I'll say more about this in just a moment, but it's fascinating the way that the superscriptions are distributed across the Psalter. In book one, 37 of the first 41 Psalms are attributed to David. In book two, I think it's 18 of the 31 Psalms, 42 to 72, are attributed to David. And then there's this note. And, and in book three, I think there's maybe one psalm. Yeah, it's one psalm attributed to David in book three. It's Psalm 86. It's the only one in all of book three that's attributed to David. In book four, I think there are two, like Psalms 101 and 103, I think, are attributed to David, and none of the rest. And then in book five, there are maybe like 15. That are, so there's kind of a renewal of David in book five. But in books two and three, uh, sorry, books three and four, there's almost nothing from David. And that joins with this other really interesting fact about the superscriptions. And that is, um, you, you've, I'm sure you're familiar with these historical superscriptions, superscriptions that are like the one that we find in Psalm 3, where we read uh, a Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. So it gives us this historical information, allowing us to identify this particular Psalm with a moment that we're familiar with from the historical narrative of, of Samuel. Um, there are only 13 of these historical superscriptions in the Psalter, and 12 of the 13 are in books one and two. Only one is in book five. There are no historical superscriptions in either book three or book four. So when you, when you put these factors together, 7220, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse are ended. And then basically no historical superscriptions except for that one. I think it's 143. And that one is just when he was in the cave. It's very brief. Uh, oh, it's 142. A Moscule of David when he was in the cave. That's the only historical superscription in book five. There are no other historical superscriptions in books four or five. So when you combine all these factors, it creates the strong impression that in books one and two, what you're dealing with are Psalms that reflect the life of the historical David. And then, then once we move into book three, um, um, it's as though you, you move from David to the life of his sons. And um, I'll say more about, about these, this impressionistic storyline, but let me just take you to the doxology that's at the end of book three in Psalm 89. And this doxology reads in verse 52, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. And here I just want to point out the commonalities between the doxologies uh, that we've seen so far. Every one of these has the word blessed. And in Hebrew, it's the word baruch. It's not the word ashrei, which is the first word of Psalm 1, which is also rendered into English usually as blessed. Uh, that word, that blessed is like the... Uh, the Greek um, makarios, it has to do with um, the experience of blessedness, being blessed by God and, and enjoying uh, the happiness of living a flourishing life. That's, that's this, uh, the connotation of this ashray. Uh, baruch has to do, it's, it's related to a verb that relates to bowing. And so it's blessing in the sense of, of, of worshiping and bowing before the Lord and, and blessing Him in that, in that way. So all of the doxologies have uh, Baruch, and then they all have the divine name Yahweh. 
which is reflected in your English translation by what, what are referred to as the small caps. So you've got a capital R and a capital D, but they're lower, they're, they're not as tall as a uppercase letter. So blessed be Yahweh. And then, um, there's some way of saying forever and ever or forever. And then they conclude with an amen. Th- those four features are in all of these doxologies. Blessed be Yahweh forever. Amen. And 89 is the, the briefest example of this. Um, the one in 106 is really interesting. Um, so in, at the end of book four, in verse 48, we read, Blessed be the Lord, the God of, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. The reason I think this one is interesting is because of the fact that it is actually quoted in 1 Chronicles 16. If you look, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but in 1 Chronicles 16, verses 35 and 36, they quote, the the chronicler quotes um, the last two verses of Psalm 106, including the doxology in 1 Chronicles 16, 36. So for, I'll just read 1 Chronicles 16, 35, and 36. Say also, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your play, praise. And then here's the doxology. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And this unit of text in 1 Chronicles 16, we, we read earlier in verse 7, on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung by, to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. So this would indicate, I think, that David gave this material to Asaph, and the chronicler is indicating obliquely that David perhaps also wrote Psalm 106. Um, and, and the chronicler knew that psalm in the form that we have it which includes, that we have it in the Psalter, which includes the concluding doxology. You, you see the way I'm thinking about this? It indicates that, that the chronicle, by the time the chronicler does his work, Psalm 106 is already known in its existing form, and there's a tradition that associates this with David, this material with David, okay? Um, and then just one other note along those lines, in 2 Chronicles 29, verse 30, we read that Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. Okay, so 2 Chronicles 29.30 indicates that the, the, the information in the superscriptions associating the Psalms with either David or with Asaph, that information is understood by the author of Chronicler, Chronicles to indicate that those are the words of David and Asaph. You track with me? So the, the biblical author, the chronicler, understands the superscriptions to point to authorship. Okay, so he knows the superscriptions, I think, and he, 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 um, he knows what the Lamed prefix on the phrase Ladawid, he knows what that means, and he, and he rightly understands it, I think, to, to point to authorship. And the reason I say this is because if you, you look at modern commentaries on the Psalms, they will review all of the different things that those Lamed prefixes can mean. Of David, for David, to David. And um, I want to say, well, we have, um, you know, ancient interpreters who were, who were first 
language, you know, primary language, mother tongue Hebrew speakers who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, the author of Chronicles, who have interpreted that Lamed prefix as pointing to authorship. And I think that should factor into your consideration of what these superscriptions mean. And then um, as, a, as a Christian, um, the Lord Jesus, whom we confess as very God of very God, light of light, you know, he, he uh, clearly understood these superscriptions to point to authorship. So uh, I think that if we are trying to understand and embrace the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors, um, and if we're trying to be Christian interpreters of the Psalms, uh, we follow the chronicler in his interpretation of the superscriptions, and we follow the Lord Jesus in how he interpreted the superscriptions. I'm happy to... Yeah? Could you repeat the, um, the reference in Chronicles, the second one you gave? That was um, Second Chronicles 29, verse 30. Um, I would also point to the quotation along these lines. It's interesting that there are a number of quotations of the Psalms in the book of Job which would seem to indicate that, that uh, by the time the author of Job writes that book, um, the Psalms are being, are being regarded as Scripture and are known as Scripture. And as a result of that um, established tradition, uh, the author of Job can draw upon the Psalms expecting his audience to see the way that he's using the Psalms. And um, there's, there's a lot more that could be said about that, but I, I think... I think within the Old Testament itself, we see indications that um, the Psalter is, is earlier than, than a lot of scholars are willing to grant. Yeah, like in Job at the very end of the speech, he said, the words of Job are finished. Mm. To kind of echo what you... It is similar to Psalm 7220. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, a, that's interesting. Why is it not the other way around? Oh, why is it not um, that the Psalter is using Job? Um, so th there's a guy named Will Kynes who, he te he's here in Birmingham teaching at Samford, I believe. Um, he's a good guy. He did his master's at Southern and, um, he's a good scholar and he argues, um, that he, he goes through every instance of, he, he, this is his doctoral dissertation. Um, I could get you the bibliographic information. The title of it is called, my song has turned into weeping. I think it's on the syllabus. Will Kinds, my song has, my, my song or my psalm has turned into weeping, I, I believe is the title, but it's, it's on the syllabus. It was one of the books recommended. He argues, for instance, that Job 7.17, which sounds a lot like Psalm 8, what is man that you make so much of him and that you set on heart, your heart on him? He argues that, that it is more likely that the, that the author of Job would sign that celebrates the glory and dignity of humanity and parody it in what he's doing in the book of Job, that's more likely than that this sort of ironic, um, we might say, bitter uh, complaint in the book of Job would be taken and then placed in Psalm 8 as a praise. Does that make sense, Lucas? Yes, thank you. Yeah, and, and so he goes through every instance of the quotation of Psalms in Job and argues that, argues on the basis of its usage, its meaning in text, this sort of thing, that it's more likely that Job is using Psalms than that the Psalms are using Job. And I, I think it's a convincing presentation.
I don't want to get us off track, but I do have a question. If you, since you've read that dissertation and you're familiar with it, I'm just curious if you remember, does the scholar make any um, preliminary arguments about uh, Job's authorship still being older? Because it's one of the few books that is found along the Torah in Paleo-Hebrew, yeah. which gives it an impression of being much older. Right. And I don't have a problem with uh, redaction and so forth. But like it's, it seems to me that that would be a necessary. Yes. If it was old. Yes. Does he cover that at all, or do you think? Um, well, I'm. I've recently recently read um, Barry Webb's commentary on Job that is forthcoming for the Evangelical uh, Commentary on Biblical Theology, the same series that my Psalms is in, and so I can't remember whether this is in Barry Webb or Will Kinds, but um, Webb Webb places the composition of Job. Um, I want to say between like some, I think he says between Hezekiah and uh, like Malachi, that that's, that's basically the range, the time period in which um, Job was most likely composed. And, and that would, I think that would allow, either of those two options would, would allow for the book of Psalms to be in existence at that point. Um, at least maybe mostly in existence. Um, the, the last doxology, there isn't, there isn't a crisp, you know, one line doxology at the end of the Psalter, but in a way, all of Psalms 146 through 150, uh, bless Yahweh, God of Israel forever. Amen. So, so there is this very clear, uh, doxological component at the end of book one, at the end of book two, at the end of book three. Um, and f- four, but then not at the end of book five, unless you know you, you have to take Psalms one forty six through one fifty as accomplishing that function. Is everybody clear on what I'm saying about how the ends are punctuated? The ends of these units uh, within the Psalter are punctuated. Everybody good with that? Okay. Um, an- one question. Yes. Um, are they somehow separate from the from the Psalm? So how would we know that it's a doxology at the end? Well, it's the, it's, I would, I would argue it's the commonality between them that they all have blessed be Yahweh forever. Amen. And, the, and that's in every instance, that's the last, um, the last statement of the last psalm in that unit of text. And it joins with this other feature that I'm about to draw attention to, which is the way that at the, at right after the doxology, there's a there's a change in authorship, okay? So, um, as I said a moment ago, in book one, 37 of the 41 psalms are attributed to David. The only psalms in book one that are not overtly attributed to David in the superscription are Psalms 1 and 2, and then um, Psalm 10 has no superscription, and Psalm 33 has no superscription. Those are the four psalms in book one, one and two, 10 and 33, they have no superscription at all. Every other Psalm in book one is attributed to David. And then you get to, to um, Psalm 42 and uh, we read in the superscription to the choir master, a mosquil of the sons of Korah. So we, we've had all these Psalms of David and now we've got a Psalm that's attributed to the sons of Korah. And, um, um, in, in book one, in Psalms one through 41, it's, it's fascinating that, 
Uh, Psalm 1 begins, blessed is the man. Um, Psalm 41 begins, um, uh, ashrei maskil. Um, so blessed is, and then they, they render this in the ESV, blessed is the one who considers the poor. But if, you, if you're familiar with this term maskil in Hebrew, I think this term is like a parallel term for the, the verb salak, which is the verb that's rendered, you know, in whatever he does, he prospers um, uh, uh, in Psalm 1. And, and that term uh, and maskil or sakal, the verb that's here in Psalm 41, those two terms occur together in Joshua 1, 8 and 9. Um, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate it, meditate on it day and night. Then, then you will make your way prosperous and then you will be successful. And one of those is salak and the other is sakal. And so those two terms, salak and sakal, they prosperous and successful or, um, something like causing wisdom and, uh, uh, reflecting understanding, you know, something like this. Um, they, they're, they're also kind of paired in uh, Psalms 1 and 2 because in Psalm 1, the blessed man who meditates on the Torah, whatever he does prospers, salak, and then the kings are admonished in Psalm 2, um, therefore, O kings, be wise, and it's sakal. Um, and so, so it, both of those terms, I think, reflect the life that results from meditating on Scripture. You're, you're going to have a life that is, that is flourishing, that is, that is prospering because the Bible will be teaching you the fear of the Lord and you'll be living in accordance with the way that God made the world. Um, and, and so Psalm 1, you know, blessed is the man, whatever he does prospers. Psalm 41, ashrei hamaskil. Um, ashrei maskil, no, no article there. Uh, blessed is the one who causes wisdom. I think you could render this in Psalm 41, blessed is the one who causes wisdom for the poor. And I would argue further that the way that he causes wisdom for the poor is he teaches them the scriptures. He teaches them the truth of God's word. And, and further, I would argue that this is what David understands the, uh, the king's role is to be. He's to be uh, living out the Torah. He's to be meditating on the Torah. He's to be instituting the practices of the Torah. And so, uh, when we go through Psalms 1 and 2, I'm going to argue that the king is the blessed man in Psalm 1, and I think the king is the blessed man who is, as the ESV renders it, considering the poor, or we could say causing wisdom for the poor in Psalm 41. But that ashray, it forms a kind of inclusio around all of, all of book 1, from Psalms 1 to 41. Uh, blessed is the man, and now uh, blessed is the one who considers or causes wisdom for the poor in Psalm 41. And then if we, if we look at the content of Psalms 1 through 41, I would argue that broadly speaking, I'm painting with a very broad brush here, there's a lot of suffering in book one. And, and it, it's a lot like um, David's experience from the time that he was anointed uh, by Samuel and the time that he was finally established as king over Israel and Judah in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And then right after that, 2 Samuel 5, he's established as king over Israel and Judah. 2 Samuel 6, he brings the ark into Jerusalem. And um, we read about these guys, well, we read in the context of reading about these sons of Korah in 1 Chronicles 6, we read that these are, these are, the sons of Korah are among the Levites whom David put 
uh, over the worship of the Lord at the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. And so I think that the, the switch from Davidic superscriptions in book one to psalms attributed to the sons of Korah at the beginning of book two creates the impression that after the suffering of Psalms 1 through 41, we've now moved into the time when David is established as king. And he's, he's installed these Levites as those who are uh, to oversee the worship of the Lord at the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. Um, it's fast. I, I think this is fascinating. Um, Psalms, Psalm 43 has no superscription, but other than that, all of 42 through 49 are attributed to the sons of Korah. So I'm just going to say 42 through 49 is attributed to uh, sons of Korah. And then you have one Psalm of Asaph in Psalm 50. And then, and then you have in 51 through, um, 51 through 70, uh, 71 has no, no superscription, 51 through 70, and then uh, I think 71 and 72 probably are, are uh, also of David. So basically you've got a set of Davidic Psalms, 51 through 72, and then you have Asaph again in 73 through 83, I believe it is. Yeah, 73 through 83, and then at the end of, of um, uh, book 3, 84 through 89, you have another set of the Psalms of the sons of Korah. Okay, so in other words, when you put books 2 and 3 together, Psalms uh, 42 through 89, it goes sons of Korah, Asaph, David, Asaph, sons of Korah. There's a, there's a chiastic structure, uh, you know, following the superscriptions that, that spills over books 2 and 3. Um, also, along the lines of what we've been, what we've been um, reflecting on regarding the way that I think book one tracks with David's suffering from his anointing in 1 Samuel 16 through his establishment as king, and then the change in book two the, to the reign of David's king, in, in the story of Samuel, um, he brings the ark into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6. He receives the promises about his house and his seed in 2 Samuel 7, and then in 2 Samuel 8, 9, and 10, David is conquering in every direction, and, and the kingdom is being expanded, and everything is going wonderfully. And then you come to 2 Samuel 11, where he sins with Bathsheba, and then difficulty begins. You know, it's like a, it's like a plummet. Um, the Lord tells David through Nathan that he's going to raise up evil against him out of his own house, and that the sword will never depart from him. And then in 2 Samuel 13, Amnon rapes Tamar, and then Absalom murders Amnon, and then Absalom um, revolts against his father and, and pursues the satanic um, cause of trying to overthrow the Lord's anointed king and make himself king instead. And, and the Psalter, I think, reflects that sort of flow of thought. Um, once you hit Psalm 45, we'll, we'll look more closely at the flow of thought from Psalms 42 through 49 in a, in, in a coming day. But once you hit Psalm 45, there's this wonderful celebration of the, the marriage of the king. And then uh, 46, we sang it last night. I think it's apocalyptic and eschatological because it's like the earth has given way and the mountains have been thrown into the heart of the sea. You know, it's like Revelation chapter 8 
Um, it's like the world has come to an end, and there's a new city uh, that has a river running through it. There is a there is a river that that gladdens the heart of the city of you know, um, and then 47 and 48, uh, everyone is celebrating. Uh, 47, one clap your hands, all peoples. Um, so everything's going re- great until you get to Psalm 51, which is uh, uh, this psalm that where David repents of his sin with Bathsheba, and so I, I think it matches, it tracks with the flow of thought in uh, Samuel. And then uh, Psalm 52 uh, is, we'll, we'll talk more about um, uh, Psalm 52, Lord willing, in a coming lecture, uh, but it, it denounces Doeg the Edomite. Uh, and Doeg, if you, it, he's mentioned in the superscription, you remember that he's the one that Saul sent to slaughter the priests um, after David escaped from Saul. And so it's almost like there's this new period of David, of Davidic, of David's experience of persecution. Um, it, it doesn't, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk more about that in a coming lecture. Um, things are, it's, so in other words, more suffering for David that he gradually begins to kind of recover from through the end of book two. And then at the end of book two, in Psalm 72, there's this, this psalm that is superscripted of Solomon. Now, um, it's superscripted of Solomon, but then Psalm 72 concludes, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So there are at least two possibilities here. One possibility is that a psalm composed by Solomon, so this one is Lishlomo, like the others are Ladawid, the Lamed prefix on the name. If this is composed by Solomon, then a, a prayer of Solomon has been included among the prayers of David. Okay, and I, I, just, I think there's no problem with that whatsoever. Alternatively, you could take this Lamed prefix to indicate that this is a psalm about Solomon written by David. And I'm inclined to that position because of the way that, for instance, um, in verse 1, we read, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. So I'm inclined to think that David is praying this about Solomon, his son, and he's essentially, in Psalm 72, asking that the Lord um, bring to fulfillment and to realization the promises made to um, to the woman in Genesis 3.15, uh, to Abraham in Genesis 12, to uh, Judah in Genesis 49. He's, he's asking, and to, and to David in 2 Samuel 7, he's asking the Lord to bring to fulfillment all those promises in the experience of his seed, um, the immediate instantiation of, of whom is, is Solomon. John. Um, I noticed that in the Greek Psalter, it's, it's the prepositional use of the superscription is it specific to Solomon. Uh, is it worded different? Is it ace? Or? Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and is that different from the way the David ones are presented? I don't remember what well, the... the... Yeah. The, yeah. So like, um, even in superscriptions in the Greek that are not found in Hebrew, I'm looking at the Hebrew of Psalm 43, which is the Greek 42, it, it just uses the David. It doesn't. It doesn't. There are, it doesn't even use the prepositions. So yeah. there are variations, but in the one to Solomon, it specifically says to Solomon. Yeah. Which yeah. does seem that David, at the end, I think clearly says that David wrote it. And it would seem to be about Solomon. Yeah. And, and the, the psalm seems to read yeah. as, as, as like a, a father. Yeah. 
talking yeah. about the kingly legacy. Yeah, I agree. To the son. I agree. Yeah. So, like for instance, in Psalm seventy, uh, the the of David part is to David is what John is saying, and then in Psalm seventy two, which is seventy one in the Greek, it's Ace Salomon. So, uh, so that it's presented differently. Yeah. So that 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 could indicate that the the translator. Uh, took this to be a psalm written by David. It's a, it's a possible interpretation. You talked about the, the chiasm, the Torah, Asaph, David, Asaph, Torah. Right. If the central part there is David, what is your conclusion about the meaning? Well, I think that often, not, not in every case, but often, um, what is placed in the center of a chiasm is kind of the... Yes, the, it, it, it'll, it will recall what was at the beginning and anticipate what is at the end. And, and it, it's, it's highlighted, it's spotlighted, so to speak, by the chiastic structure. And I would take it to indicate that, um, that David, uh, the historical figure of David, he is being spotlighted, and, and in particular, he's being spotlighted, spotlighted because of the way that he anticipates the future king from his line, and the way that he prefigures and typifies the future king from his line. Could you reiterate that literary structure of authorship? Yes, so 42 through 49 are Psalms of the sons of Korah, and then uh, 50 is a Psalm of Asaph, and then essentially 51 through 72, but you know, 72 is of Solomon, 70 has no superscription, 71 has no superscription, 70 is Ladawid. Um, those are David, and then uh, 73 through 83 are Psalms of Asaph. And then I think it's like. Yeah, there's kind of a chiastic structure that goes Korah, David, Korah. Um, in, so 80, 80, 84 and 85 are sons of Korah. 86 is David. And then 87 and 88. Are Korah, and then 89 is a mosque of Ethan the Ezraite. So there's, it's like uh, two of Korah, one of David, two of Korah at the end, followed by 89, which is sort of the concluding psalm. Okay, um, and and again, I think that uh, just just to paint with a broad brush, I would say that Psalms 1 through 41 seem to correspond to 1 Samuel 16 through 2 Samuel 5. And then book two, 42 through 72, seems to correspond to 2 Samuel 6 through really the end of the book, where David, uh, he starts out doing really well, and then he sins with Bathsheba, and then he has a lot of difficulty, and then things sort of begin to get better at near the end of 2 Samuel, uh, like chapters 21 through 24, where there are the accounts of his mighty men, and, and, and the location of the, of the temple is identified. Um, the threshing floor of Arauna. And then once we move into book three, Psalms 73 through 89, again, there's, there's only one Psalm of David here, and, and we, we were sort of uh, tipped in a Solomonic direction in 72 of Solomon. And in this, in this book, there are some significant threats uh, to the temple. So, so I think that the the editors of the Psalter, beginning, beginning with David, so, so my, uh, my pet theory 
is that David was thoroughly conversant with the Torah, and he completely understood Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 through 32 and Deuteronomy 4, 25 through 31, where Moses essentially says to Israel, you're going to go into the land of promise, you're going to break the covenant, you're going to be exiled under God's curse, and then God is going to keep the promises that he made to Abraham and restore you to the land and and give you all the blessings that he's promised to you and renew renew the world. I think David understood that, and so I think it, it's it's uh, conceivable that David uh, that David would set up the Psalter to reflect what we're going to see here, uh, and that others came after him and understood what he had the, the the project that he had initiated, and they sort of fill out they put the flesh on the bones, so to speak. These other these other psalmists that. Um, for instance, these Psalms of Asaph that are, that are here. Um, the threats to the temple, we can see these in, for instance, Psalm 74, where um, in verse 3, well, at the end of verse 2, it says, Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. And then it says, Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Now, I'm inclined to say that statements like that in Psalm 74 and like these in Psalm 79, where it says in 79.1, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. Um, 79.1, is that what you asked? I said Nebuchadnezzar. Um, not, I don't think yet. I think Nebuchadnezzar, the destruction of the temple and the exile of the people, is, is in 89. We're getting there. This I would identify with uh, passages like 1 Kings 14.25 and 2 Chronicles 12.2-4. So just to read one of those, uh, 1 Kings 14.25, unless Peter has it memorized um, from his comment, commenting on Kings. First, okay, 1 Kings 14.25, just wanted to check there. Um, says, in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak king of Egypt came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. So, so Shishak, he plunders the temple. And, and I'm inclined to think that the, um, the threats to the temple and the, um, you know, the, the slaughter of the people it reflected in 74 and 79 reflects those kinds of early um, defeats and, and um, uh, setbacks and threats to the temple that you read about in, in places like that. When we get over to 89, um, this is a, a glorious, magnificent psalm in which um, the psalmist Ethan the Ezraite, he starts out um, celebrating the covenant that God made with David as an expression of God's Hesed, his steadfast love or his loving kindness. So he says in verse 1, I will sing of the chesed, the steadfast love of the Lord forever. And then he says, with my mouth I will make known your faithfulness. And this is emet. So God's character, his chesed and emet, or his, you know, his loving kindness and his truth, that's what the psalmist is celebrating here. And, and in particular, beginning in verse, he, he repeats those terms in verse Two, steadfast love and faithfulness, uh, chesed and emet. And then in verse 3, he says, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. And then he just goes all through the Davidic covenant. 
And it continues all the way down to verse 38, where he says, but now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. And so what this guy, Ethan the Ezraite, seems to be reflecting on is the way that God made these promises to the house, about the house of David, to the seed of David, but now um, the Davidic line of kings seems to be cut off. And, and that happened when, when uh, the king was dethroned by uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Jerusalem was destroyed. And so we read in verse 39, you have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. And then he says, for instance, um, in verse 44, you have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. Um, so the, it seems that in Psalm 89, we've come to the end of the line, the historical line of kings from David. And the psalmist, this is, this is profoundly instructive for us, because the psalmist does not do what Gerald Wilson says happens in the Psalms. Uh, Gerald Wilson, in his 1985, uh, dissert, published in 1985, um, he, he sort of initiated this sort of, this narratival approach to the Psalter, and he argued basically what I've been saying. So, in a way, I've been following his argument that you start with David and, and then you come to the end of the Davidic kingship in Psalm 89, but at this point, he argues that the psalmists, the anthologists, the editors, whoever put this together, they give up on David. And in books four and five, they, they stop hoping for a king from David's line. That is manifestly not what is happening in Psalm 89, and it is manifestly not what happens in books four and five. That is totally and completely wrong. And if it were right, it would be to say, yeah, God made a promise, and then he decided not to keep it, or the people stopped expecting him to keep it. But look at what the psalmist says in, in verse 46. He doesn't say, and now you're going to do this new thing, O Lord, that doesn't have anything to do with David. Or now we're going to democratize the messianic hope and take, in other words, we're not going to hope in a monarch anymore. We're going to hope in a renewed people who are going to bring to fulfillment the promises you made about the king or something like that. That's not what he says. He says in verse 46, how long, O Lord? So the, the question is not, are you going to do something new at this point? The question is, how long is it going to be until you do what you said you were going to do? And, and the way that this is worded, I think, is also profoundly instructive because when he says there, will you hide yourself forever? I think he's evoking what we read in Deuteronomy 32, where in, as, as, um, I, again, I think in Deuteronomy 32, Moses is he's summarizing what the Lord has done to this point in Israel's history, and he's forecasting what the Lord is going to do in the future. So as he summarizes Israel's history to this point, he says in De Deuteronomy 32, 19, the Lord, the Lord saw it, the fact that they were unmindful of him in verse 18, the Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. And I think that when the psalmist says in Psalm 89, 46, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? The psalmist is, is locating what he's describing in the, the meta-narrative that is introduced for us or, or elaborated on for us in Deuteronomy 32. 
Does that make sense what I'm saying? In other words, he's saying, the psalmist is saying, the Lord cutting off the line of David is exactly what Moses was talking about in Deuteronomy 32 when the Lord said he was going to hide his face from Israel. And so, you know, the question how long implies um, this is not going to last forever. Um, So verse 49, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? That question would not be asked if the psalmist was giving up on the hope to David. That question assumes God made a promise about David. God's going to keep a promise to David. The only question is how long until it, until it comes to fruition. So this is, this is reflecting faith and it's instructive because it's commending to us this response. It doesn't look right now like, like the author of Hebrews says, uh, we do not yet see all things in subjection under his feet, right? We do not see everything in subjection under his feet. Uh, but just like the author of Psalm 89, Ethan the Ezraite, we're, 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 we're saying how long? And we're saying, come Lord Jesus, because we want those promises of God to be realized and we're fully confident that they will be. Everybody, everybody okay? Everybody good? Okay. Um, we're at, we're at like 1015. So this would be a, a good time for a break, but I'm happy to take a minute and see if there are any things you want to discuss before we take a break and then we'll come back and sort of finish out the storyline of the Psalter and then hopefully get back into Psalms 1 and 2. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.